walk as we experience Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at the story of Mary Magdalene and her post-resurrection experience found in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and go to that. Um, if you don't, um, you could use our Bible app that's on our online platform, or you can follow along as it's read. Um, and, uh, but before we do that, I'm going to uh, open us up with a word of prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, thank you for your goodness and your grace, for your mercy, uh, but we thank you for your presence. You are risen. Um, you are alive. Holy Spirit, you are present with us right now, as close as our very breath. So even whether we are acknowledging it or not, we are experiencing something of resurrection reality. And so this morning, as we look at this story and we think about our own story, we pray that you would reveal your truths to us, that you would encourage us in our walk, that we would um, respond how you invite us to respond, and we would do so both with joy and obedience. And we just um, thank you for already what's been a great morning of worship and prayer and celebrating all the women here at One Life and... Um, so much to be thankful for. So we just praise you and ask you to be with us and lead us and teach us this morning. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, Greg, I have a question. Do you have the handheld mic? Do you mind reading our text today just because people hear my voice too much? <laughs> um, but before we get there, I'm going to hand this to you. I meant to ask someone, and in my running around, I didn't get to that. So before we get to the text, though, I would like you to imagine you were one of the disciples that had been following Jesus up to the crucifixion. And it's hard for us to imagine because that was a long time ago, a different world, right? But imagine you were one of those people that were following Jesus up to the crucifixion. You've witnessed miracles, lives changed, You've witnessed teachings about this kingdom of God and this radical, countercultural way of living. You've witnessed a person who doesn't just talk about loving others, including our enemies, better than ourselves, but lived it right in front of you. You witnessed a person who, who cares for the weak and the lost, and the disabled, and the sick, and the outcasts, and the poor, and the hungry, and you've witnessed Jesus take what seems like nothing and is able to magnify it and provide for thousands in need, right in your very presence. Imagine the loss these disciples are going through. And all of this is going on for the disciples in unique ways tied to their different stories, right? Peter experiences this kind of loss differently than Thomas or John. And Mary Magdalene is no different. She has not only witnessed some of these things, she's experienced firsthand her life transformed by the power, love, and grace of Jesus. And if you remember, prior to meeting Jesus, she was possessed by not one, not two, not four, but seven demons. Now, we don't really know what that means, but... We do know one thing. Seven is typically symbolic in the scriptures of perfection. So it's basically saying she was perfectly and fully and completely demon-possessed, however crazy that might be, and however that meant for her in her community, how she was seen, how she was experienced, and how she was treated. And the scriptures tell us that ever since her life was transformed by Jesus, 
and since her healing experience, that Mary was a devoted follower and supporter of Jesus and his ministry. We don't know exactly what that means, but it probably included financial support as well. And she witnessed most of the events surrounding the crucifixion. She was present at his mock trial. She heard Pontius Pilate pronounce the death sentence on Jesus. She saw Jesus beaten and humiliated by the crowd. And she was one of the women who stood near Jesus during the crucifixion, trying to bring some form of comfort to him. I bring this up because as, as we think about and try to imagine what it was like for these disciples, I want us to think about it, what it would be for us, but also have some context for what was going on for Mary. Hold on to those things and what you might be feeling as you put yourself in her shoes as well. So as we go now, I want you to just sit back and listen to the text, taking some of this in consideration as we look at what this might have to say to us today. So, this is John 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, just tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Thank you, Greg. Um, Brian, I'm not sure what's going on, but technology-wise, this doesn't like anything I'm doing. So I'll try to let you know when I have a slide, and hopefully it'll, it'll find its way there. John gives us this narrative, and it lies at the heart of the gospel. Jesus, who was crucified, has been raised. And here we watch as Mary, Peter, and this unnamed disciple discover that Jesus' tomb is now empty. And it's this outward and visible sign that Jesus has conquered death and a new creation has begun. And it's in this section that we see a story that unfolds in these kind of three distinctive acts. It's a story about people who are searching, 
about sadness and fear. It's a story um, about action and surprise and joy. And it's a story that takes us full circle back to the very opening of this gospel, which we'll see. But the story, the scene opens up with this solitary figure walking through the darkness. Mary Magdalene has broken through her fear and her mourning in order to go tend to the body of her teacher and her friend, this person who's transformed her life. And all the Gospels talk about this story, but they all have various points. They differ in ways. But what they are consistent in every single one of them is about the day this happened and that Mary's the very first person to go to the tomb. And when Mary arrives and finds that the stone has been removed, she jumps to conclusions. Her perception of what has happened is that someone has entered and stolen this body. But notice that the author doesn't tell us at this point if she even entered and looked in the tomb. Did she really know that the body of Jesus was not there? Which always makes me wonder how often we like to jump to conclusions about God's actions in our lives? Do we actually put the full effort in to look? But nevertheless, this is what she thinks. She runs back to tell Peter and about what she believes has happened. Then act two shifts to the experience of Peter and this unnamed disciple, intriguingly identified as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, over the years, there have been many suggestions about who these two people might represent, for example, one being representing of the Gentiles and the Jew- Jewish Christians. Or could it be that this beloved disciple is unnamed because some scholars have suggested that that person is supposed to represent each and every one of us? Which is something to ponder. But we're left wondering. And like Mary, they hear this news and they run. The unnamed disciple, perhaps younger, arrives first. Since he could be the junior partner in this, like, dual relationship, um, waits for the senior partner, Peter, to arrive. He, or it could be a she, we don't know, allows Peter to be the first to enter. And inside, Peter discovers that the tomb is indeed empty. And unlike the four-day dead Lazarus who stumbles out of the tomb, um, hindered by his burial wrappings that we see in John eleven forty four, the cloths in this situation... They're still in the tomb. The details are interesting. The author describes the placement of the wrappings, but also notes that the cloth that had been covering Jesus' head has been rolled up nicely and put in the other part of the tomb. And here we should note that the tomb is truly empty. When Peter and the other disciple enter, there's no angel and there's no heavenly messenger at this point. John tells us that the beloved disciple, quote, saw and believed. But what we don't know is what he or she believed. Could it be that they believed that Mary was correct and the body was stolen? Or could it be that they believed what Jesus had said to them the night of their last meal together in John 16, 33, where Jesus tells them that he's going to overcome the world? We don't know. The second act ends, and the two go home. And I want us to note that at this point, there's no shouts of joy. There's no celebration yet. The emptiness of the tomb doesn't seem to have made a difference yet. The focus, 
then returns to Mary, standing outside the tomb. And again, hopefully we're thinking about Mary's story and all that she's experienced, both in her transformation and what she's witnessed about Jesus. And so she's there by herself, still weeping, and she now decides to enter into the tomb. And as we look at the text, it would seem that neither Peter nor this other unnamed disciple have any words of comfort or encouragement or anything to offer to Mary. But here, Mary does not find an empty tomb. Although the body of Jesus is not there, there are two angels present. And the angels ask her a good question, why are you crying? Which seems like it should be obvious at this point, but they ask Mary why she's crying, and she responds by repeating her interpretation of the situation, that her friend's body has been stolen. She then turns to see that there's yet another figure who she doesn't recognize, which as we've looked at these stories, we've seen a similar pattern. These disciples have a first experience of the resurrected Christ, and initially they do not recognize that that's Jesus. In some cases, it's a stranger, and they're literally walking around with the stranger, not realizing. In other cases, it's a ghost, and they're not sure what they're thinking. Here, we see Mary thinks it's a gardener, but in fact, it's the resurrected Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself often wondering whenever I read this, like, why gardener? Which here's some photos. Um, was, was Jesus literally wearing overalls, right? Did rake and a shovel? Uh, why gardener, right? And these are, if you Google it, you will find hundreds of depictions of this scene. And they're all quite fascinating. I believe John here is giving us clues on how we might understand what has happened and as a result of this resurrection. And there are two things that drive us back to the beginning of John's gospel, encouraging us to view this story not as the end of the story, but as the very beginning of a brand new story. And the first thing that we see is when we look at John's gospel and the very first words that Jesus speaks, there are a question directed at the disciples of John the Baptist. And my slide errors are not like me. And the question in John chapter 1, verse 38, when Jesus turns to them and says, what are you looking for? The very first question Jesus asks of the disciples of John the Baptist is, what are you looking for? And here in the beginning, this new creation story, Jesus asked Mary the very same question in John 20, verse 15. What are you looking for? Whom are you looking for? It's a new ministry with new beginning. It's a new story. And I wonder if Jesus is asking us the same question. What are we looking for? in our day-to-day? What are we searching for? What are we hoping for? It's a really good question that I think Jesus is asking us all the time. And we see that it wasn't till when Jesus called her by name that Mary recognized her beloved rabbi, which always makes me wonder, how often is Jesus calling our name? How often is Jesus speaking to us, but we're not listening? We're not paying attention to God's voice in our day-to-day, inviting us to encounter the resurrection here and now. You see, when John's disciples called out to the rabbi in John chapter 1, verse 39, in the very beginning of John's gospel, Jesus invites them, saying, come and see. 
come and see. I wonder how often we are being called to come and see the new things that God is doing in our lives right now and in our midst. Now, the second thing to note is that unlike the synoptic gospels that begin with the story at dawn, John's story here begins in the dark, in the absence of light. This is the writer, John, who at the opening of his gospel took us not to a stable, but to the very opening of creation, saying the words, in the beginning. In the beginning. And it makes us wonder, could it be that John is taking us back once more to the pre-creation darkness that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where it speaks of the earth as a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep? Could it be that John is echoing Paul's declaration that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are experiencing a new creation, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where it says these words, everything old has passed away. See, everything new, everything old has become new. In our gospel story, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus first because she chooses to remain in the darkness. Peter and the beloved disciples, they leave when they see the empty tomb. But Mary stays weeping in kind of this grief-stricken place that we can resonate with. I have a quote here by Nadia Bols Weber speaking of this and says, Mary remains present to what is real, to what is actually happening. And she does so even when what is real feels unbearable. And if we've ever lost somebody close to us, we know something of the feelings that they're going through, and Mary still sits with it, even though it might be unbearable. And I don't know about you, but in my own life, I'm finding it increasingly true that clarity and hope and healing come when I'm willing to linger and sit in the hard and barren places where the easy kind of answers aren't, they're not adequate. They're not adequate for my feelings and what I'm going through. It's not enough to just say it's going to be okay. And it's when I sit in those difficult places and I feel the feels where I actually start getting transformed. And so here Jesus comes in the darkness, and as a result, sometimes it takes a long time for us to recognize God in our presence. And the truth is that Jesus doesn't always look the way I expect Jesus to look just like it was for Mary and these other disciples. And also, there are times when Jesus doesn't let me cling to all my old ideas of what I've experienced Jesus to be. Jesus is changing and transforming and becoming more and more to me in these moments. And so oftentimes, Jesus seems to kind of disappear again just when I try to grab hold, when I think I figured it all out. But just when I recognize and own my need again, over and over again, again and again, Jesus, I need you. Jesus comes, Jesus calls my name, and in an instant, I'm able to again recognize both myself and Jesus more fully in that particular moment. And I think that's what's happening here for Mary. Because if you think about it, where are we located in this story? Does anybody know where this story is happening? 
If we go to the scripture right before ours in John chapter 19, verses 41 through 42, we see this. It says this, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus the story locates us in a garden. And I believe that without even knowing it, Mary has actually correctly identified Jesus as the gardener who is bringing a new world, a new life, a new creation into being, just as Jesus has done before. Jesus is a gardener that's cultivating resurrection life in all who will come to him. And this image of Jesus as a gardener is packed with meaning. We could do weeks and weeks just on the meaning. For example, gardener's work is never done. It's never finished, and it's a process-driven, moving through all the seasons of life. It's earthy and intimate, and gardeners always have their hands in the dirt, in the messiness, carefully preparing and protecting and feeding and handling living things with their own living hands. And so you might say that the very first seed raised by God in the garden of the resurrection became the gardener. And that when Mary Magdalene, quote, supposed him to be the gardener, unquote, she was exactly right. Jesus is now the gardener of resurrection, cultivating new life in all who believe. John chapter 1, verse 3 through 5 says this, all things come into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. All these connections that we see in John. And there's another noticeable difference. If we think to the first creation story where God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden due to sin, here what we see is this new creation story where Jesus sends Mary out of the garden rejoicing with the good news. She's sent out to tell people of what has happened out of the darkness into the light to tell of the word made flesh who has lived among them, who is still alive. And the scriptures tell us in verse 18 of chapter 20 that Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with this news, quote, I have seen the Lord, exclamation point. Her message declares this new beginning that God has prepared for all of us. And it's the same message of new life, new beginnings, and a faithful presence that God is continuing to tell and write in each and every one of our stories. In other words, what this post-resurrection story tells us is that each of us, when we come to the empty tomb, we bring our own experiences, we bring our own stories, our own context, our own pain, our own doubts, our questions, our hopes, our joys, all of it. We bring our full story to the empty tomb. We don't try to shed all the baggage and try to make ourselves look like we got it all together. Rather, it all comes in. And as a result, it shapes each of our perceptions and our conclusions about what is happening. And so what that means is that what matters most is us encountering the risen Christ 
in the particulars of our own messy story. What matters is finding in the empty tomb the hope we need for our own struggles, our losses and disappointments, that we find it there. And that when we make claims that we're followers of Jesus, our claims need to begin in that fertile ground of our own heart and stories that Jesus is working out in us. When we give praise on Easter or any day for that matter, it has to start with a willingness to to allow ourselves to linger in the garden, forsaken and alone, listening for the sound of our own names being spoken in love by the resurrected Jesus. Which means the, the power that comes out of our testimony to people, it's, it's about an intimate encounter with Christ. That's what gave Mary's story power. And so it's not so much a power because we have an answer to the question, why should I believe in Jesus or this doctrine of the resurrection? As nice as though those things are, what's more important is when we ask questions. And those questions are, why do you believe? Why do you believe? How has the risen Christ been revealed to you? Or how have you encountered the risen Christ? Those experiences that you've had are what make your testimony powerful, not your study of doctrine. It's your experience, you bringing your stories, your reality, your loss, your hopes, and you've encountered the risen Christ who's doing something new in you. And as you can see, this type of testimony, this witness, it's not easy because it's not just some, something you studied. It's not just theological concepts. It's about your life experience. It's about application. And it requires the risk of hanging on to hope when things fail around you and the risk of sitting in the dark after everyone else has run away. It means we need to know God's voice, right? We need to be listening for it. And not just knowing God's voice and not just listening to it, but responding in obedience to it in order to join God in the resurrecting work of making all things new, to bringing about the kingdom of God that he spoke about the whole time. When I went through this ordination process, that was one of the things that, it, the whole experience was fairly overwhelming and um, just powerful. Um, and one of the reasons why was because there was this tie to hearing the Spirit nudge us, moving in whatever it is we're called to. But not just that, it was the honor and the privilege to respond in obedience to that, whatever that is, because it's not easy to do. And so what we're talking about in these stories is, is how our own story, our own experience has helped us have an encounter with Christ, but what have we done with that? How have we responded to that? How have we encountered the risen Christ, and how have we changed as a result? As we end, I want you to be thinking about that, and, and my prayer for you is that the Christ who rose in the darkness would continue to lead you into new life and new light and new hope. May we know Jesus in the half-lit places 
in, in the shadowy places, in the hard places. May we dare to linger at the tomb until Jesus calls our name and sends us forth to share the good news with our community and with our world. And when we're asked, why are you a Christian? It's my prayer that we will be able to give an answer that's honest, that's humble, that's relational and true, that many others would witness the realities of, of both hope and struggle tied together, braided together, if you will, as God continues to make beautiful things in and around and through you. And so with that, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and, and they're going to give us some space to ponder this. And again, I, as I asked you to think about what it might have been like for the disciples, I want you to be now transitioning. What has it been like to you to encounter the risen Christ? How has that affected your story? And how has it affected you now? Because a lot of us go, oh yeah, I remember back when I was 16, and I gave my life to Jesus, and I had this encounter. But you're not 16 anymore. Um, and that's Okay. We should be encountering Christ in the here and now. And I wonder if many of us, myself included, often get so busy in life, we're overwhelmed with the world's many voices that we aren't pausing to hear Jesus calling us by name uh, and inviting us to be sent into something new and exciting. And so with that, as the worship team's here, I'd love to invite you to take out your connection card if you're in the room. It's on your seat. Um, if you're online, you'll find a link on the online platform. These are just questions to get us thinking um, what application, or not even application, just how do we kind of ruminate on some of these ideas, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. So question number one, how has the resurrection of Jesus changed your life? How has the resurrection of Jesus changed your life? And what I want to be clear, I, I would love to hear how it happened maybe when you first became a Christian. That would be great. But I'm more interested in, in, in the present moment. How is the resurrection changing your life? Number two, how does the idea of Jesus being a gardener resonate with you? And how would you describe the work God's doing in your life right now in light of this image? So again, let's pull that image around tilling the soil, planting, harvesting, weeding, pruning, feeding, preparing. How might the gardener image be interacting with your current story? Number three, what are some areas in your life right now that you might want to wait and listen for God's voice before you move? Even if other people run away, where might you be invited to sit and wait and listen for God's voice? And number four, where has God planted you in order to be a light and testimony of the good news of the resurrected Jesus? Just to be clear, wherever you are, that's, that's it. <laughs> I'm going to answer it for you. But maybe you're not aware of that right now. So I want you to be thinking purposely, where do you see God has planted you and inviting you to do something in that place? I'd love to hear your thoughts on one or many of these if you'd be willing to. Uh, as you go, those of you here, if you could slip the connection card in one of the wood boxes, that'd be great. Those of you online, just hit submit and we'll, we'll get it sent to us and that would be great. Um, but however you respond, use this space. You can pray, you can use it to confess, to give thanks, to receive, to be filled. Dream 
whatever you feel called to in this time. I also want you to note that the prayer team is back here available. So in the room, they'll be right over here. Those of you who are online, all you have to do if you would like prayer is to click the request prayer button that's on the left of the chat line. Um, They will respond in the order it's received because they're juggling those here and online. Just be patient, um, but know that they're here ready to pray with and for you. I'm going to close us uh, with a word of prayer and then The band will give us a little space to reflect, and then we'll sing one last song of response. Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, um, we thank you that the resurrection is not just a past something. We thank you that it's real, but we also thank you that it's happening every moment of our life, that you are literally resurrecting us and keeping us alive with the gift of grace that is your breath, that is your Holy Spirit in us. Whether we recognize it or not, you're gifting us life. And God, we believe you are a God of resurrection, a God of transformation. You are a gardener that's tilling and working and bringing about new life. As we, we went through the Lenten season and, and think about the, the image of spring and new life emerging, may we be those people who are attentive to the work that you're doing, that we hear your voice speaking to us and inviting us to participate in whatever it is you're doing, that we'd be those sent ones who bring the uniqueness of our story, our hopes and our struggles, um, to testify to what you're doing in us here and now that that would be compelling to a world that desperately needs to know you're there. So even in this time, help us reflect, help us to celebrate, to give thanks, and, and just to listen to your spirit. And not only help us hear us listen, but help us respond in obedience to what it is you're calling us to. And pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.